And you saw the photograph of the top secret documents laid out on the floor at Mar-a-Lago. What did you think to yourself looking at that image? How that could possibly happen. How one, anyone could be that irresponsible. And I thought, what data was in there that may compromise sources and methods? And by that, I mean names of people who helped, or et cetera. And it's just uh, totally irresponsible. And you don't know. Democrats were shuddering privately just right. a few days ago about how big the margin was going to be. Republicans were predicting a red wave, but they may end up with the same slim majority Democrats have had for the last two years. We are going to take the House back. But we've got so much more to do, and I have only begun to fight. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve... Welcome back to the Ruthless Variety program. I am Michael Duncan. No Josh Holmes here, but I have Comfortably Smug and John Ashbrook. This is going to be such an amazing episode. I'm, like, so fired up. Um, You know, that opener right there is Biden giving his comments on the raid that occurred at uh, Mar-a-Lago. And now, isn't it funny? We we've gotten news about multiple yes. classified documents being found here and there uh, that Biden was careless with, and it's it's like more documents are being found by the minute. Like as we're as we're recording this right now, there's breaking news of a second location in which these top secret documents were found in the possession of Joe Biden. You know what I find stunning is that here we are uh, in the second week of January. And it's breaking news. Right. These documents were found at the very beginning of November. Right. Yes. And no, nobody reported this. Nobody mm-hmm. revealed this before the election. It was kept secret. That is very before key. the election. Like the, 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 we have the receipts. There is so much to this discussion, and it's very critical we go over it carefully and in detail. Uh, because you're already seeing the media trying to just completely hide this. And, and, and we will. We absolutely will. What's most important that we get into at the front end here is that we have two great guests. Yes, we do. This is, I mean, this is a huge program. This is a huge program. Huge. I, I mean, we've got Harmeet Dillon mm-hmm. um, and RNC chair Ronna McDaniel. Um, there's obviously a debate and a race for who's going to be the future RNC chair. And so we want to have both of the main candidates on our show. And of course, you know, they're here. We're glad they're here. And and, and where else would you be but the Ruthless Variety program? I mean, that's amazing. Like we always love to do during campaign season is have every candidate, every dog in the fight on the show. And we got them both. What, What a lineup. I just think it's important. You know, the future of the Republican Party is obviously important in what we do to succeed. And you know, I think these two interviews are going to be a huge part of that, the autopsy of what we did in the last cycle and where we go from here. One of the things that we try to deliver to our audience, who, quite frankly, is the greatest audience in 100%. all of uh, radio, uh, podcasts, or television, is multiple perspectives from the right side of the aisle. And that's what we're that's what we're doing here today with these interviews. That's what we try to do with, with, with each one of these shows. So another perspective, and huh, we gave... We gave McDaniel a hard time in the Ombudsman report on Tuesday. Oh, that's right. We did. That's right. We did. Uh, and so he's now come back in with uh, a graphic. This is on the frog versus toad debate, Smug. Yeah. I mean, and and so this graphic basically has a frog, a, you know, a quote frog next to a quote toad. He says quote. Yeah. yeah. And, and the graphic's claiming that, like, toads are squatty shape, 
you know, broad nose, bumpy skin, short legs, and this has frog athletic body, pointy nose, smooth skin. Like, this is ridiculous. This is the same animal. It's the same animal. It's like one horse is, you know, black, one horse is brown. It's got to be completely different. (laughs) You're a a frog versus toad denier. Yeah, it's the same thing. It was just the British used the word toad, and now people (laughs) think it's a different species, and it's just the most ridiculous thing. Oh, that's so good. It's so good. Well, I appreciate McDaniel trying to educate you. Yeah, well, and I appreciate that you were so stubborn you're not going to acknowledge these are two different animals. I will never be educated. <laughs> I, think, I think there is, there is something to what you say. Yeah. I think toad is simply just, it's a British term. Yep, 100%. Toad. It's a toad. Yeah. It's not, it's not it, like an American bullfrog is a very identifiable thing yeah you know what you're looking at when you see it totally. you shine the light on it yep. it stops in its track you gig it <laughs> <laughs> and then you fry its legs a toad uh, they I, I just in england they didn't they didn't know what to do with it no idea um I, honestly i say we just get right into it let's get right so into it so much to say about this biden situation yeah so we got the the biden document double standard mm-hmm. folks um you know obviously biden as you saw from our intro had a lot to say about the mar-a-lago raid mm-hmm. uh with president trump uh and now it turns out that there is a think tank joe biden folks joe biden mm-hmm. eloquent Man, with a big brain, mm-hmm. as we've seen. Yeah, we've here. been told. Uh, he's got this guy's got a think tank. Yeah, with I, UPenn. I'm gonna I'm gonna read this directly from from an article. Uh, it says among the items from Joe Biden's time as vice president discovered in a private office last fall, like Ashbrook said, last fall, uh, are ten classified documents, including U.S. intelligence memos and briefing materials that cover topics including Ukraine, Iran, and the U.K. According to a source familiar with the matter, Attorney General Merrick Garland has assigned a U.S. attorney. Uh, to investigate the matter. The documents were discovered on November 2nd, just six days before the midterm elections, but we're only hearing about it now. Oh, wouldn't it's you funny. know? It's funny so how that convenient. works. So convenient. And and again, I, I, I think a key part here is it's Merrick Garland in charge of this situation where he sends in, you know, SWAT teams to kick in the door at Mar-a-Lago. Meanwhile, with Biden, he's like, okay, wait a minute, guys. All right, we got to wait until after the election. Let's give it a little bit of time. And then we can start to look into this. And you're seeing news, you know, most media companies are trying to slow play this. Um, but as, as uh, Duncan mentioned, so the, uh, it says, uh, the source told uh, CNN that a personal lawyer for Biden was closing out the downtown D.C. office that Biden used as part of his work with the University of Pennsylvania. That's the think tank. This is just incredible. And, and this think tank itself is really important to discuss um i i pointed this out on twitter like uh, a lot of folks started pulling these receipts um on this think tank this is a think tank that has received i, I think the figure is 50 million dollars from china right. right from the from chinese government sources have funneled 50 million dollars into this think tank mm. right this think tank was paying joe biden nine hundred thousand dollars a year mm. right 10 percent for the big guy and guess who else was there half his cabinet was drawing uh, uh, paychecks from this place. Essentially, this think tank existed to do two things. Get money from the Chinese government to give to Biden and his buddies and and uh, irresponsibly and illegally store confidential right, documents right, that right. cover Iran, yeah, national security. That's the important thing. When we say think tank, we're saying that with air quotes because, because in reality what this was 
is a shell corporation. That's it. To fund uh, the work of Biden allies uh, from China. I That's mean, this it. is basically just a make work factory for fail sons of Joe Biden's political network, right? This, this is made, so this is from a, a Fox News report on it. This is specifically discussing basically how this was just a cash grab among Biden and his buddies. It said Secretary of State Antony Blinken, among several current administration officials who previously worked at the Penn Biden Center. We're talking about the Secretary of State of our country right yeah, now. right. Was drawing money from this. Right. I mean, we saw the same thing with the Clinton Foundation. Yeah. Right? I mean, for, for years... Uh, reporters had a, a, a curiosity about what was going on in that Clinton Foundation. Why is it now, Ashbrook, that like now no one cares? Well, we talked about this at the beginning of the show, and I think you know there are a lot of very upsetting aspects to this revelation. One of them is the fact that we are learning about it now. Now. That they kept it secret when voters were headed to the polls. They didn't want people to know that Joe Biden was hiding secret documents, classified documents that mentioned Ukraine, that mentioned Iran, that mentioned our allies in the UK at his own place because they thought that might upset their chances to hold on to a handful of House seats. It is the most disturbing thing about American politics today. The, The... I cannot tell you, everybody listening to this show already knows it, but I cannot tell you what a corrosive force Mm -hmm. this cabal between the mainstream media and the Democrats has on American society. It makes our politics unfair. Mm -hmm. It makes it it uneven. And it means that Democrats are never held accountable for the things that they do. It's normalized corruption. It's norm- that's what this is. So it says at least 10 senior Biden offic- administration officials uh, were at, getting paid by the Penn Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement. Um, it says, uh, we already mentioned Anthony Blinken, our current uh, Secretary of State, Under Secretary of Defense for Policy, Colin Call, and the White House Counselor, Stephen Reschetti, all were getting money from this, among others. Uh, it says, since the Penn Biden Center opened, this is, this is very key. Penn has been accused of accepting millions of dollars in gifts from Chinese donors. The National Legal and Policy Center, a government watchdog group, filed a complaint with the Department of Justice in October of 2020, demanding an investigation into $22 million in anonymous donations earmarked from China. Just anon- It's just like, hey, here's a bag of cash from just $22 million in a bag of cash from China. Have a good time, guys. Uh- Again, we're reading about this in January, and I I don't mean to just beat a dead horse here, but the reality is that what Americans want is an equal opportunity instigator in the mainstream media. Yep. I'm, you know, as a Republican, I'm I'm the guy on the show that always gets, you know, you guys always give me shit because (laughs) I'm the guy sticking up for the mainstream press and all there are a lot of reporters who are trying to do a good job. And I actually do believe that. But People are tuning out to mainstream media because they feel like it's they're putting the thumb on the scale for one side, and they're like, well, if I want to sign up for the DNC press list, I'll sign up for the DNC press list. That's it. They, they, they want somebody who is going to hold Republicans accountable. Republicans don't like it. You work with candidates who are like, well, why are they sticking it to me on this? And it's like, well, pal, you did, the, you did it. 
Well, that, I, you know, you got you got to come up with an explanation for why you did it. I hope they do not they stick it to Democrats. I hope them. That's I ho- all we're asking. I hope the media has a little bit of curiosity in all of this because all I see about the reporting here on these Biden documents is some stuff done in in Fox, which is great. Don't get me wrong, but the rest of the media should be picking up this torch. Here's one of the headlines from Fox News because I, I I just found this absolutely stunning. UPenn struggles to explain $3 million donation from Hong Kong Shell Company. The school received $3 million from, and this is the name of the LLC. You ready for this? Nice Famous Corporation Limited. Huh. Which is owned by a Chinese national. This sounds Dude, totally it's, it's legit. <laughs> It sounds like a Chinese buffet restaurant. Like, <laughs> like, are you kidding me? It's it's as preposterous as Rudy Giuliani's Fraud Guarantee Corporation. I don't know if you guys remember this from before the election, but the media lampooned it, as it should have been. But this should have received equal equal mocking. It should have received equal attention. And this is not all, not this is not Rudy Giuliani's buddies doing something they shouldn't have been doing. This is a foreign government seeking to influence American power. And this is the current president of the United States. Exactly. And he's and he has it in a filing cabinet right. here at UPenn that, that's you know, taken $3 million it, from a Hong Kong shell corporation. They're, like, it was here in D.C. Right. Here in D.C. at here, the think tank location. Here in D.C. It's not like it's a skiff. Like this is in yeah. a secure building, yeah, right. right? And 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 so th- this part of the the report which said that the National Legal and Policy Center, when they filed this complaint about twenty two million in anonymous donations earmarked from China in October of twenty twenty, well, they they filed it with the Justice Department. And guess who's running the Justice Department? It's Merrick Garland, who's the guy who will send, uh, you know, folks to kick in the doors at Mar-a-Lago, but drags his feet anytime. This administration itself needs to be held accountable. Well, that's uh, that's impossible, Smug. Uh, the DOJ is an independent part yeah. of the administration. Merrick Garland's <laughs> the same guy who's allowed, to this day, to this day there are mobs outside the houses of conservative Supreme Court justices. He's allowed mobs to run amok and enforce basically left-wing ideology, and he himself is giving, you know, basically... Uh, uh, it was a cover-up, in essence, of when you have this information six days before an election... Six days before the midterm election, the fact that it's sealed tight and only now we're hearing about this, which is right. an, this is an incredibly serious affair. Right. When, when you have uh, a Chinese-funded think tank holding on to classified documents that are illegal to be in their possession, and the vice president is involved, the current president, who was then vice president, is involved, and we don't hear a peep about it. And then, you know, like we'd mentioned, we have late breaking news. More documents have been discovered. Mm-hmm. More classified documents. In a separate discovered. location. This is unbelievable. I'll tell you this. Thank God that we have a House majority. Thank God there is a man like Jim Jordan who is going to get to the bottom of this. Jamie Comer is going to get to the bottom of this. We have the authority to investigate the Biden administration because we know that the press will not hold them accountable. So the voters have held them accountable. And, and we're. And they and need to. And that's the thing is like the House needs to go rotor rooter on this administration we've yes. seen how corrupt they are that like you know we've been told hey you know you give us the gavel we'll investigate you gotta follow through like they need to go ham on this situation right here um the idea that's constantly been popping up in my mind when i hear about this is it's you know it irritates me almost is always you like oh imagine if a republican did this because to me what the theme has really become is it's not about hypo- uh, hypocrisy it's more about hierarchy yeah like 
this is not you know oh wow they're allowed to do this and, and we're not of of uh that's unfair this is that's part of of the system that they want in place, right? Like where the rules, class. right, and the rules don't apply to them. They don't like the same way that you know you'll hear Dems who are against school choice sending their kids to private schools, right? The same Dems who are like, okay, you know, we shouldn't have any pollution. You shouldn't fly. You know, Mayor Pete doesn't care if every plane in the right. country is grounded. They're taking private jets. Right. They're going to Davos on private which, jets. Which 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 care. brings me to our next story we must cover, Smug, which yeah. is the FAA ground stop. Flight disruptions cascade across U.S. after computer outage. This is from the AP. Thousands of flights, delays, and cancellations rippled across the United States early Wednesday after computer outage led to a grounding order for all departing aircraft by the FAA. That's insanity. Insanity, and 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 you got Mayor Pete who flies pi- private. Yeah, and remember that Tom Price was run out of the Trump administration because they were digging up some of his records flying private. And, but but for Mayor Pete, there's no problem, no yeah. problem at all. Fellas, private jet Pete can do whatever he wants. That's it. It's hierarchy. <laughs> right. This is this is par for the course for Pete Buttigieg. Remember the supply chain crisis. Yep. Right. Let's not forget that. Let's not forget the pileup of ships off of the Pacific coast. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yes. Hundreds of ships just waiting, trying to offload their stuff. Pete Buttigieg was so disorganized, they couldn't do it. Let's not forget the 4th of July last year yep. and how much of a disaster that was. Let's not forget the railroad strike. Yep. Let's not forget what happened just a couple weeks ago over Christmas when the airlines were an absolute disaster. So whenever they're like, oh, this is an unprecedented situation, it's like, dude, this is like every month this is happening. Right. Every it's, month is just absolute chaos. And, uh, uh, again, these are people who are not being held to account because they themselves believe, hey, the rules don't apply to us. We're the ruling class. Like, right. why should we have to follow the rules? Why do I care if people can't catch their flight? I just need to roll up to the PJ. and They got me covered. Pete's fine. Pete doesn't care if anyone else has a problem. And, and that, to him, doesn't even look like a problem. R- reminder that this is a, a guy who wrote a bike for a quarter mile for a photo op and then got back into his secret service funded you know suburban uh, suburban and everybody talked about how oh well, our, our 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 secretary of transportation he's green he's yeah, green that's what the media does he's green yep you know he really wants us to guess the, the the next place in, in energy in america and wants us to go green and he flies these private jets and all these flights for you get canceled and that's the thing. Again, it's 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 about uh, hierarchy. It's not about hypocrisy. And that also leads into the situation we saw with gas stoves. Hmm. Of like AOC jumps out into this conversation of uh, so so the government right now was weighing whether gas stoves should be just made illegal. And this is, <laughs> it's this, wild. is how, this is how insane a time it's, we live in, right? So they're like uh, uh, so AOC gets out and she's starting to tweet of being like, hey, in case you didn't know. You know, gas stoves are dangerous, and there are studies that show it affects cognitive abilities for people who are using gas stoves. And she was like, uh, we, there should be a plan in place where, like, the government pays to basically take people's gas stoves. Yeah. And they get a credit or whatever to go buy an electric stove. And then, you know, uh, uh, folks start pulling up from her Instagram when she does her little video. Oh, Instagram lives, yeah. Gas stove. Yeah, of, of course. course. she's got a gas stove. Of right. course. Because, hey, why should the rules apply to the ruling class? Right. Yeah, this is the new Politburo. 
Like we live in so the Soviet Union, we just don't realize it, That's right? Like happening. there are there are people who work in the government, these liberals who 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 get to be hypocrites because they are part of the the political power. Like they can do whatever they want. But let's be very clear about where their power comes from. Um, one of our one of the uh, uh, a guy that we follow routinely, this guy Tom Elliott, mm-hmm. who posts a lot of clips from cable news. He's really keeping them honest. He posted that uh, a CNN segment where they were talking about gas stoves yeah. this morning, just randomly, just yeah. just happened to be talking about gas stoves, and said the science is showing us that having a gas stove in a small apartment, especially with bad ventilation, is like having a ca- a car idling there. Everybody is on the same message immediately. Yeah. Have you have you anybody listening to this show before this week? heard that gas stoves were a real problem well all of a sudden yep. democrats determined that that was their new boogeyman yep. so that they could take the attention away from joe biden's uh illegally held documents about right. iran and right. ukraine and all of a sudden we're just they're, they're trying to like show us the keys like i think that i look think, at this and not at joe biden ashbrook i think you just hit the nail on the head because i feel like every week now whether it's you know, gas stoves or whatever. It's every week they invent a new fear that you're supposed to have, right? Because what they want is to distract you from the failures of the administration. And if they can keep you focused on the next thing you have to be scared of, you're never going to think to yourself, oh boy, it looks like they've really fucked a lot of things up. You know, they always attack Fox for being the network of right. fear mongering. Yeah, right. Nobody fear mongers more than the climate change zealots. Th- there was this really, really great tweet from Charles C.W. Cook where he says, this is one of the creepiest parts of modern progressivism. AOC had never tweeted about stoves before yesterday. He pulled it up, did a search, nothing. But when she did for the first time, her tone was one of wary condescension towards the bitter enders, whom she's been trying to inform for years. It's cultish. That's the thing. It's, yeah. it's a cult of belief. The whole environmental bullshit, all of progressivism, it's all essentially, it's a cult. Yeah, they just, they get the talking points, and it's like suddenly they immediately knew this forever, and we are so stupid yeah. for not knowing it. Yeah, how are you dumb people? Don't you know you're not allowed to have gas stoves? Right. Unbelievable. Well, it's absolutely incredible, but we got to get to our first interview here, okay? Um, our first interview is going to be with Harmeet Dillon. She is challenging Ronna McDaniel for RNC chair. Let's get to that. I want to welcome to a program a very interesting woman. She's a prominent conservative attorney. She's also an RNC committee woman from the great state of California. Now she's running for RNC chair. You've probably seen her an awful lot on your cable news boxes over the last few weeks. Her name is Harmeet Dillon. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me today. Listen, I want to get into this, but I... To have our listeners get to know you a little bit first, you've got an incredible story. Uh, you're a daughter of Indian immigrants. You've been a, a decorated lawyer. Tell us a little bit about your background. Well, yes, I came to the country at two years old. My father uh, and mother and I were all born in India, and my dad finished his medical training, and I ended up growing up in rural North Carolina, where my dad was the uh, country orthopedic surgeon there. And so grew up in the deep South at a time when it was a yellow dog Democrat for the most part. My parents registered as Republicans when they became United States citizens. And, you know, we literally were still living in Klan country back then. There was a sign on the highway when we moved to our town saying the Ku Klux Klan welcomes you to Smithfield, North Carolina. So, uh, you know, 
they wanted to be part of the other party. <laughs> and, yeah, and, uh, should and say so, so. <laughs> you know, yeah. And so, you know, they got actively involved in politics. We had fundraisers for Senator Jesse Helms and other Republicans back in the 1980s. And, and that was really my start in politics. When I went to Dartmouth, I uh, fell in with the Dartmouth Review crowd, uh, Dinesh D'Souza and Laura Ingram. And those folks were my mentors. I ended up becoming the editor-in-chief of that conservative newspaper and being on the leading edge of campus speech fights uh, back then, including being on 60 Minutes and you know, basically every major newspaper in America on a lawsuit that we filed there. So that was my start. Of, instead of going into the pre-med route that I started with at college, I, I went into the political legal route. So I worked at Heritage for a year as a writer. Uh, the funny story is that, um, that uh, Tucker Carlson actually inherited my desk at Heritage when I went oh. on to law school. So, so we overlapped there uh, br- briefly as well. And, uh, and then UVA Law School headed the largest chapter of the Federalist Society there. I clerked for a conservative federal appeals court judge in Maryland. And then for the last 30 years, I've been a, uh, a, a lawyer. And started out in big international law firms and worked in New York, London, and Silicon Valley, and San Francisco before starting the firm that ultimately became the head, the firm that I had now, which has offices in five states, five five offices, and, and 22 lawyers. And almost everybody who works at our firm is either a, a Republican or conservative or doing litigation, protecting the free speech rights. Uh, or the rights of of people in different conservative uh, types of high profile cases in the courts, including religious liberties, speech, anti big tech censorship, and of course election law. Um, now, in politics, I've been an active volunteer dating back to my days at Dartmouth when I was the head of Dartmouth students for Jack Kemp um, back in the day, and joined the state party after being a volunteer for many years in California. I've been the county chair of the San Francisco GOP for four years. That's a tough assignment. It's the hardest job in politics to be a county chair, whether you're in a red county or a blue county. And I would say it was probably the toughest county in America to be uh, a county chairman. And so, you know, I, I really walked the walk, registered voters in the rain in San Francisco, ran for office twice in San Francisco, raised money nationally for the, for those campaigns and you know, ultimately became part of the state party, vice chair of the state party. And now for the last six years, I've been a member of the Republican National Committee representing California there, uh, also representing the party in election litigation over the last two years, in free speech litigation, and, um, and also representing political clients and campaigns, political action committees, and, and candidates all over the country. And so that's the background. And uh, frankly, you know, one of the reasons I'm a volunteer in politics, not not my not my job in politics as a lawyer, is because I want Republicans to win elections because we have better ideas, we have you know better candidates, we have we have we have policies that spring from the Constitution or they should, and yet for the last six years at the RNC since we elected President Trump in 2016, each of the election cycles has been disappointing. We lost the House, we lost the Senate, we lost the White House. And so um, our current chair, Ronna McDaniel, told us when we elected her last time that she was going to have a third and final term. So now she's running for a fourth term, despite that promise. And I step forward, I'm the only member of the Republican National Committee who's challenging 
for the chairmanship. And I have some specific ideas about how the party needs to get back on track immediately to, in order to win the 2024 uh, election. And so, you know, that's kind of the short story of how yeah. I got to be where well, I am today. Well, let's get right into it because it's it's obviously a daunting task and going from, you know, a decorated career as a, an attorney and getting involved in, in party politics at the state and local level. Um, it's obviously a leap to to run for chair of the RNC. And you talked a little bit about the specific ideas. What in your mind is sort of the, the top three or four things that you'd like to do immediately as RNC chair if given the opportunity? Well, we have failed to catch up with, keep up with, or certainly defeat Democrats, outperform them at getting our ballots into the ballot boxes. And that's a weird way of saying it isn't voter turnout because voter turnout is the old school model where you wait until election day. I like that model. I used to vote that way. However, increasingly throughout the United States, we have these early voting laws and mail balloting laws in some states, like states that are that are largely rural, Oregon and some others, they, they only have mail voting is, is their main method of, of voting. And so we have failed to adapt to that. You know, the, the Democrats can elect virtually, uh, uh, I mean, in, in the case of John Fetterman, barely functioning candidates, uh, in the case of Katie Hobbs, somebody who can't and won't debate, in the case of Joe Biden, you know, serial liar, biggest liar in DC, and, and also, I would say non-compost mentis on some days, <laughs> these candidates are elected by Democrats with, uh, with, with no discussion of so-called candidate selection, which is an excuse Republicans use for not electing candidates this time around, because the candidate doesn't matter. The Democrat machine is able to whip into action and get the ballots of Democrat voters into the ballot boxes right away, bank them, and then they can coast to the finish line. But we have refused to do that. So I'm, I'm sorry, until we can change those laws, which I'm very much committed to changing, that's my next point, until we can change those laws and, and, and tighten up the voter rolls of these states, we must outperform the Democrats at that task. We must get our ballots in early um, at, at the Republican National Lawyers Association, which I chair, we call this claiming your ballot early, uh, get it in. And, and then track it, make sure it was either turned in because you turned it in yourself because you voted early or you dropped it off at the polling place or mail it and then track it. That's, that's something we failed to do completely in 2022. And we really have to do that for 2024. Yeah, I, look, I think election right, integrity. I think, I think you're right a lot of, about a lot of that. Let me let me just boil down on that just for a moment, because sure, I think what I'm hearing is from an infrastructure standpoint, we're just not where we need to be. And I, I look, I I agree with that. I think that's right. I do re recall having been in this line of work for 20 years that we used to be better at it. Uh, there was a day, you know, 10, 15 years ago when Republicans in terms of absentee and early voting far outpaced where Democrats were. And, and obviously the change in emphasis during the Trump administration and some of the things that the president said about uh, the legality of voting by mail, for example, has had an impact on the grassroots. What do you do beyond just the infrastructure side at the RNC to try to convince voters that this is once again a legitimate way to cast your ballot? Yeah, excellent point. So in California, we outperformed the Democrats for years, uh, for 30 years in early voting, and particularly older voters, retired voters would find it convenient to vote that way. And it was after the 2020 election debate debacle 
where I think it is fair to say that many states not only changed their election laws, Republican and Democrat governors did this, but beyond that, there were methods used, including the Zuckerberg's uh, infiltration of state election procedures, so that there was no transparency. You couldn't even witness the counting of the ballots in many swing states. And so what we saw was a real decrease around the country in voter trust in our election counting election methodology that is in turn uh, morphed into activists saying oh you must uh, walk your ballot in even if it's a mail ballot walk it in on election day in person watch them feed it into the machine or insist on it getting rid of machines or what have you uh you know i i understand the sentiment but and, and it's democrats who did that republicans did not decrease our our trust in our elections regardless mm -hmm. we have to deal with the situation that we have right now like I don't like the speed limit. However, that's the law. And, you know, I'd like to not, uh, you know, have my license taken away. I have to comply with the law. Right. I can I can run for office and change the law. That has happened. But until you win the election in the state legislature and have a governor who will sign your new election law, you don't have a new election law. And mm -hmm. so I think not only do we have to develop the plan with the mechanics of how to do this, we must also uh, promote it. We must also have voters, candidates. Uh, step up and vote this way and encourage people to vote this way. And and I've done that in California. I'm a, I'm a state party leader. So I made a video of myself and my husband filling out our ballot at the dinner table and, and then showing a, a video of how we dropped it off and, and then how we tracked it and confirmed the day that it was received by, by the election um, uh, department here in San Francisco. And so I think we need to be leaders on this. Now, to be clear, not every state has it. So it isn't like the RNC can do a one-size-fits-all program. What the RNC does, as it should be doing, is raising money efficiently and then using that money and transferring a portion of that money, a good portion of that money, to the states and then helping the states design the plans that work for that state. But there needs to be some mechanical way of doing this. We need to be uh, uh, creating templates for states on how to do it, providing the resources on how to do it. It is a new program, so we may need to raise specific money to do it, but it requires the leadership to do it. And if you have a chair who's afraid to promote it or say it, it's never going to happen. And we're going to, con I, I give it to you in writing. If we do not do this, we will lose the 2024 mm -hmm. election and we will be uh, decades behind being able to catch up. So that's, that's a big mechanical thing that we must do at the RNC. Yeah, how, do you, um, how do you ensure? We must all, sorry, uh, how, I was just going to say, how do you ensure that the state and local parties which we've had a problem with frankly over the last few years have mm -hmm. wherewithal to adequately use any money that you may raise for this purpose right i mean we have a huge disparity between a good state party and a really bad state party in 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 our within the the ranks of the rnc and state parties how can is there any way to improve that well, let me let me give you an example. So I've been calling all these chairs. There are 168 members of the RNC, and uh, I, it's when you call some of the red states. And it, what's interesting is the red states are among the worst sometimes, frankly, um, because, because they don't have to. You know, compete, everybody right? running, yeah, everybody running for office is a Republican for the most part, or it has been historically. It's kind of a party boss system. They give out favors or what have you. It's 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 not the model of efficiency you would think. It's by default. They're not they're not that great sometimes. Now, so I called up a, a red state chair um, in the Midwest uh, over the last few days and was making my pitch and 
And I said, what would you like to see differently at the RNC? And, and the response was, well, nothing. Everything's great. They've always done, you know, whatever we wanted. Now, this state is a state where they lost the governor's race uh, mm. to a Democrat, even though it's a red state. <clears throat> they lost a major um, cultural measure. I won't get specific about it. No, I think I can. Everything is not great. State. <laughs> Everyone is not great in that state. Okay. Right. Everything is not doing well in that state. And yet, you know, and by the way, the money transferred from the RNC to that state was actually very little compared to other states. I don't know whether that's because they didn't ask for much or whether they, you know, thought they didn't, didn't need it or, or didn't ask for it, you know, for it, whatever. The point is they didn't get it and they think everything is fine there. So frankly, to win elections in that state, you might need to have a change of leadership in that state. Mm -hmm. uh, but the chair knows who's who in all of these places and, and can make that decision. So we have a system at the RNC of regional political directors. These are sort of, you know, mid you know, sort of mid-level staffers who's, who are supposed to have their finger on the pulse. You know, some of these folks need to be switched out, quite frankly, but some of them are very good. You listen to the local leaders about these issues. Uh, my state, which is mocked widely, actually has one of the most efficient state parties. Uh, we raise money very efficiently. We have what I would call a very regionally based political operation. The Central Valley, we elected uh, a new Republican congressman. I helped raise money for him. In in the Sacramento area, we, we elected a new congressman. Uh, and so we picked up two seats. And then we kept our seats in Orange County and Southern California area. And we, uh, we ballot harvested and we ballot cured in those regions. And we won narrowly. Sometimes, sometimes they were counting until the 30th day and it was a thousand votes ahead and we won. That's a very efficient party using the resources that we get very efficiently. And so I think you do have to be cognizant. You don't just send the equal amount of money to every state. They have different needs, but you have to sit and design a program. You have to have regional political directors and state and sorry, national political directors who have the patience to sit down, figure out what the needs are. Some states have a more rural population. Some states have, like California, regional opportunities. Some states have specific litigation needs, uh, which the RNC can and should be supporting. And so that's that's really the second thing that I would do is to make sure that I'm raising enough money as a chair. But then election litigation has to be a high priority for Republicans nationally. That doesn't mean the RNC funds all of it. It does mean the RNC should be identifying the opportunities, have all the research, have a legal department that maybe is la larger because it needs to be daily monitoring these things and identifying litigation opportunities, and be prepared to spring into action with allies or themselves. I mean, what's interesting is that under current standing laws in the United States, it's often the RNC or the state party that have the best opportunity to get into a case and be the plaintiff. There is no nonprofit that can do it. But if, if you have a, 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 um, Mike, a lot of Mark Elias's lawsuits uh, happen to be on, be, on, on behalf of nonprofits. In, in court right now, I'm, I'm against the Michigan Welfare Rights Organization, the ACLU, the NAACP, La Raza, La Familia Vota. So if you're a Democrat trying to weaken election laws, you use a voter from a minority group saying, uh, you know, voter ID is racist or not allowing me to vote on Saturday is racist or um, not enough polling places is racist. It's easy to make those kinds of pot shots. That if what you're trying to do is actually improve the uh, voter rolls of the state or um, strike down a law that decreases integrity, you know, being the plaintiff in a state party is often the best way to do it. And the RNC has the ability to raise the money 
under campaign finance laws, and then support the state party in that. That's that's something that I've been actively involved in over the last two years after complaining about it not being done over the last four years. So uh, well, I feel like seen, I have a good handle on, on what needs to be done. One of the things so interesting about your career is that you you've worked with all kinds of different organizations. If I'm not mistaken, you were at one point on the board of the ACLU, and now to watch them sort of migrate over to be a tool of the left in some of these, uh, you know, contests within voter integrity laws in various states in this country has to be a little bit jarring for you. Well, look, I mean, I'll give you a short anecdote. When I mentioned the litigation against Dartmouth College in the 1980s, because it was a free speech issue, the American Civil Liberties Union stepped forward to support us and help us find a lawyer. Yeah, they used That's to the be old terrific, ACLU. Right? <laughs> That's the old ACLU. In the ni- in 2001, I was one of the few Republicans in the country who stood up and said the Patriot Act is going to be a civil rights disaster for our country. And again, it was that organization that championed that effort here in California and probably in other places around the country. And so you know, that was the limited purpose for which I uh, I joined it at that time and, and then resigned because, again, you know, they were they had been drifting leftward for a long time. But today that ACLU has actually stopped doing most free speech work. They certainly don't step up important to it. And they've just become yet another uh, Soros funded tool of the left, really. And so, yes, today the ACLU is, is just one of many woke orgs that are stepping up to decrease uh, our integrity in our elections. And at the same time, we on the right don't have conservative institutions filling right. that role yet. And, and we need to. And by the way, leadership at the Republican National Committee could encourage major donors who are maxed out uh, and have you know, given all that they can to, to party organizations to step up and do their own. In fact, some of my litigation over the last uh, two years has been funded by former RNC donors who are tired of seeing the party fail and have started their own organizations outside, be they PACs or nonprofits or what have you. And they're pouring millions of dollars into doing the same on the opposite side. We need we need ten of those, not just the one that I'm working with. And so, um, so this is something that the RNC can and should be doing as well. And I want to I want to turn to one of my a uh, couple more of my pet projects here. I think that you know, look, I, you you guys have a lot of political consultants and successful ones on on your team, um, but what we have in DC is I think a captive audience of but the RNC is basically captured by the same political consultants who've done the work there for for well over a decade now since Reince's era there've been really the same vendors uh, of of the money you see the RNC raising more of it goes to political consultants than it goes directly to the states hmm. uh, more of it goes to overhead and raising the money than it does go to the states and so I think that there are some pretty gross efficiencies there because if you don't win elections for six years and the political consultants who are giving you messaging advice, who are doing your direct mail, who are uh, formulating the political strategy, where's the accountability? Why are those people being hired for a fourth term of failure or in the case of if they were uh, one of Ryan's consultants for their 14th uh, years of failure? I don't think that should be the case. So I've called for an audit of all consulting and vendor relationships at the Republican National Committee is one of the first things I would do, both in terms of how was that money spent and in terms of what did we get in response uh, in, in, in exchange for that money. So this has been one of the 
things that has basically set the whole DC consulting class uh, against my campaign. I think many of them are volunteering, calling up, calling up, uh, you know, every newspaper in DC and trying to plant hit pieces on me. And it's kind of amusing to see that, but it's you know, fun. It's fun to be a part of it. Their own self-defense. <laughs> Are you sure you it, want it this is, gig? It is. <laughs> well, you know, it has to be done. Yeah. I'm sorry. I mean, if I, 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 look, we had a letter in my campaign yesterday where tens of millions of dollars worth of donors signed on saying we cannot support the Republican national committee until there's a change in leadership. And those donors saw it before I ran. They've been telling the chair, the current chair, that they're not going to give to the party until there are changes for some time now. But somehow we found some other donors. We found them through Win Red. We found, you know, enough people to respond to the direct mail that we keep going. But at some point, um, you know, the rubber is going to hit the road and we're going to have to make major changes in order to continue to keep the confidence of our donors, our voters and and our elected officials. I mean, I'm beginning to get a lot of uh, endorsements from members of Congress, including several of the of the uh, Freedom 20. And uh, and so it's exciting to see people actually care about an RNC race for once. But it is, while a uh, little understood organization, it plays a critical role in electing Republicans nationally, and it needs to be strong and efficient, which it is not right now. No, that's an interesting take. So, so one thing I want to to bring up because I I think look I think this is the the unspoken reality that we in addition to infrastructure that you spoke about before that is really hobbling our campaigns, it's the small dollar front and the huge discrepancy on a campaign by campaign basis between where Republican candidates, particularly in the Senate, were last cycle. And where Democrats are that seemingly have an endless pot of of money to draw from. And I'm wondering from your perspective, I mean, look, people have a lot of theories of the case. I mean, one theory of the case is you've got a former president who's raising $200 million within the context of, you know, not being on the ballot and whether or not that that mm-hmm. takes away from the candidates that were in the field. Uh, there are others that are talking about just vendors and lack of creativity or we don't have enough donor acquisition. What are your thoughts on small dollar and how we fix it? Small dollar and how we fix it. Uh, I mean, the, the best way to fix it would have been to perform well in the midterms. Okay. That would have inspired Republicans with confidence that we are, we are on a track to win in 2024. But I think you have to have something to talk about. Uh, you know, for one thing, one of the issues I have with our, current chair is she claims credit for the fundraising over the last six years you and i both know the credit for the fundraising goes to president trump and his name and 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 its use in fundraising and suddenly we can't do that um he's announced for president for uh a third you know for a third campaign in november last year and as a result under campaign finance laws and, and party rules you know, you can't be sort of preferring one candidate over another or, or using that name the same way that you used to. And so we must have positive, uplifting, clear messaging that clearly draws a distinction between the Republicans and the Democrats, which I think we have not been doing a great job of. And that needs to be our message. And we need to be, I think, probably giving incremental goals to voters. I mean, maybe focusing on particular issues at a time. Focus on the border in a credible way. Highlight our accomplishments and uh, raise money for specific programs. Yeah, be more creative. I actually think these pitch, in other words. Be more creative. It, right. it, isn't, it isn't just, I mean, it's a little harder. And I've, I've spoken to some of the folks who crank out the direct mail for the party. And 
you know, I don't want to give away the whole show here, but, you know, let's just say that uh, I think we need new tactics and new creativity and frankly, new integrity in that process. And, 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 and it just needs to be a different approach than, you know, a volume approach. It needs to be a quality approach. There probably needs to be more communications with our donors that don't ask for money needs to be telling them what we're doing for them and then maybe make make an ask in a second engagement. Uh, we probably need new and, and different spokespeople making those asks. Uh, we need popular figures in the party. Maybe they're, they're not just political figures, maybe they're cultural figures. Uh, it does require a new creativity and a new, um, you have to come to the table with, with your hat in hand saying, hey, you know, we're making some changes we're making some changes and that that requires in turn acknowledging that you did something wrong that you'd like to do differently or better and and i, I don't think we have that right now if, if we're being told everything is hunky-dory let's have two more years of what we had for the last six years i i despair at the ability to do that so i think a change in leadership would be critical to winning back the trust of those donors small dollar donors and and voters who we need because we need to hold on just uh, uh, looking back at the electoral map we got to hold on to the Trump voters, okay? But you have to give them something to vote for. And you have to um, win their trust. Some of those are new voters for our party. And if you keep losing, uh, they're going to drift back into the arms of the Democrats who win elections and give out stuff. They give out yeah, goodies. Right. Uh, they give out, uh, you know, they give out uh, these student loan, you know, flashy things like that, whether they end up winning or not. They... They give out stuff that sounds good. They use social media influencers. They use TikTok influencers to sell their ridiculous policies. We, I think we spend zero on social media influencers at the Republican National Committee, even as throughout the United States, conservative organizations like, you know, you mentioned Turning Point, so many others, social media influencers are, are, are prolific they're they're like you know tribbles they're 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 you know multiplying and there are are uh, they're conservative they're young they get they get what different demographics the party needs to win care about and they communicate with them the fact that we're blowing money on direct mail and 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 you know tv ads and not on social media is crazy. Democrats are investing heavily in that. Democrats are also investing in this cycle in data. Now, I think the RNC has done a, a good thing with with uh, its data innovations over the last decade. We have our, our data trust. We continually get data from states. We feed it in. But the data you get from states is only as good as the state data maintenance. So in California, that's terrible. Our Secretary of State does a poor job right. of maintaining our data. So the data you get for California is not very good unless you're investing in new sources of data, commercial sources of data, and integrating those. In turn, that requires a budget. So again, all of these things are inter interrelated, but we're hitting a fundraising wall. I think that's very clear from FEC reports. And so we have to we have to reinvigorate our base to continue to be able to raise money. And then we have to spend that money much more wisely than we have in the past. So some belt tightening is required, some creativity is required, some integrity and return to basics is required. Some insistence on core principles is required for the party, which we don't talk much about our platform or about our uh, constitutional principles. I mean, imagine if we had a situation where instead of fighting over rules like, hey, you get 72 hours to read the bill before you get to vote on it, or we're going to have a balanced budget 
in 10 years, or we have to cut programs before we budget more money for new programs. We're going to investigate the weaponization of the deep state. Imagine if Republicans ran on those issues. I don't think uh, Kevin McCarthy would be presiding over a five vote majority in the House. He'd have a 30 or 40 vote majority in the House. So the fact that we're arguing over stuff that should be basic in the party is a problem. So I hope Republican elected officials get the message. The Republican National Committee needs to get that message as well. Yeah, and you obviously have to work collaboratively too, right? I mean, that's that's part of the absolutely part of the deal. You got to part of the deal. Work, to work together and try to broaden the tent a little bit. I think we've been pretty focused on trying to winnow it down over the years, which has been problematic from an electoral standpoint. But I, I get to, here's the last question before I get into our our, our final uh, bit that we do on Ruthless here debates. Um, I'd love it. I think the variety program and most of the the listeners here would love it if we had a more open process for Republican primary debates, included more conservative voices, clearly pushed off uh, some of the main corporate media voices that we've heard dominated in the past, right? Absolutely. And that is that something debates, that you'd be interested uh, in pushing pushing forward as chair? Well, the, well, the party the party has already started that process. We've uh, divorced ourselves from the presidential debate commission yeah. over right. this last couple of years, which is a which is an important innovation. I think what we haven't done yet is really discussed how to make use of the modern platforms. I mean, we're talking on a modern platform now, the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I can't remember the last time I turned on network television for any purpose. I, I don't watch it um, right. at all. I don't watch company. the ads, nothing, zero. Okay. And so we need to talk about harnessing online platforms that are easily accessible for some of these debates. Now, the, the, there are some mechanics you have to worry about in debates as well. Having 17 candidates on a, on a f- same debate stage, that's not a debate. That's a that's something else. That's a series of statements and with a, with an a, a, a occasional fight breaking out in the line, you know, in the lunch line. Right. But that's not really a debate. And so I think there need to be some criteria. Uh, you know, who are these people and what's their ability to raise money and get on the ballot in different states, things like that. But once you have that, absolutely, we should have a free and open exchange of ideas amongst candidates who have any chance in heck of winning. And it should be before the largest possible audience. Uh, and there should be some debate formats that include participation by 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 the by the voters, uh, be it uh, moderated questions or some other way that's fair. And again, the 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 hack uh, network or even cable <laughs> hosts who do a terrible job of 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 illuminating choices for Americans, they should not have a role in that. We should be yeah. involving new, younger, hipper. And or you know more trenchant voices in that process. Like so I, I think it could be very exciting. Folks like the ruthless variety. Program. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I love yeah, it. I mean different. You can have different formats. By the way, different formats will appeal to different people. There still will be voters who want to see everybody wearing a suit and having some ponderous, right. you know, voice intoning questions. And then there'll be many more of us who want to see modern formats. Yeah. Yeah. No, well said. All right. So here are the final questions that we got that everybody pays attention to, Army. This is these are the ones that everybody's judging you with. Okay. So the first okay. question is if you could plan your last meal on earth, what would it be? Um, so my last meal would be probably 
crab, Dungeness crab from yeah. the California coast, which my husband and I love to get, pick it ourselves, and over a simple pasta with some fresh parsley, garlic, and lemon juice. That'll be the perfect meal. That sounds good. That sounds solid. Uh, all right. So second question, if you never got into this line of work at all, and you look back in your career, you've got this blue sky out there that you can fill it with any ambition that you've ever had or anything you'd like to do, what would it be? Probably be a novelist who did a good amount of knitting on the side because I'm I'm a prolific knitter. You're a prolific knitter. See, we learned something new here. That's uh, that's. Oh fantastic. yes, when you see when you see me on Fox News, I'm frequently wearing a sweater that I made myself, and these sweaters take from forty to hundred hours to knit, and I also oh, design Lord. many of them. So it is it is it is a passion, but it doesn't pay the bills. So <laughs> I would definitely have to do that novelist gig and do it well to be able to pay the bills and live in the style to which I become accustomed. Yeah, hard to scale that. <laughs> um, it is hard all right so third and final question i'm going to take a second to explain it our view is that most successful people in this country are motivated primarily by one of two things the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat it's not that anybody enjoys losing or anybody hates winning it's what drives you right and the way to think about it is the thrill of victory people are are sort of your glass half full optimists always kind of charging up the hill they're motivated by the accomplishment itself the the, the agony of defeat people are people whose every accomplishment they've ever had lasts like one second in terms of their appreciation but every defeat or setback they've ever had they wear like a backpack and that's what motivates them to vow to never repeat any any failure in the future army dylan where do you find yourself on that spectrum well, that's a hard question. I think on different days, I'm different things. But overall, career-wise, I am a trial lawyer. And if I were motivated by defeat, uh, you know, I think that would be a hard place to sell to clients. And I don't have don't have a law firm with five offices because I'm, you know, sort of dwelling on defeat. In fact, uh, I'd say victory motivates me for the most part. Uh, three cases that we won at the United States Supreme Court for the right of Americans to be able to pray during COVID was something that I'm very proud of. And it motivates me to do more and more of that. And it motivates young lawyers to join my law firm. So we are a victory oriented um, project here. I'd, I'd love to win this RNC role. And I'd love to see us win the White House, the Senate and the House back in 2024. And then do it right. We had all of those in 2017 and 2018. And yet, because of feckless leadership, we did not accomplish much during that time. And so we got to have a second chance. and We got to do it right this time around. Harmeet Dillon, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for spending all this time with us. Really appreciate your views and uh, stay in touch. Thank you so much. This is a lot of fun. Well, I thought it was a great interview and it's great to see Holmes. He's not on this episode, but he does our interviews most of the time. And uh, I thought it was really informative. Yeah. And again, like I said, it's key to make sure that every voice is heard, um, especially when it comes to leadership, because, you know, the direction of this party, who's going to be calling the shots, it matters to every single Republican in this country, and we got to make sure our listeners get it straight from the horse's mouth. And, right. what, and what this show delivers is multiple perspectives within the Republican Party, because we know that there that those exist. It's not just like one person that says, oh, I love this candidate, and, and that goes, and that's the law. We, we're, the, we're the party of ideas. Conservatives aren't afraid of people who disagree with them. They right. really aren't, because they know that their ideas come from come from a very logical place. And, and, and I guess that's almost like a good segue into this story I want to get into is what happens when you don't allow any conflicting ideas 
Folks, San Francisco is a sewer. This is an article from San Francisco Chronicle. It says, don't jump in puddles. Sewage is overflowing into San Francisco Bay and city streets uh, as we speak. It says Jeez. millions of gallons of stormwater mixed with raw sewage made its way into creeks, the bay, and city streets during recent heavy rainstorms that overwhelmed dozens of Bay Area sewers and some treatment plants. Some raw sewage seeped out of manholes or backed up sewer drains, calling into question even the idea of kids splashing in their rain boots. Don't jump in puddles, especially in San Francisco. You want to be careful. There could be sewage in that, Ugh. said uh, Eileen White, executive officer of the San Francisco Bay Regional Water Quality Control Board. It's, okay. it's, okay. It says it's too early to know the full impact uh, because complete records are not yet available. Like, <laughs> this is what happens. Maybe, we have no conflicting ideas, single party rule, zero accountability. Yeah, maybe we should be afraid of some people who disagree with us. Like, it, like the people in charge in San Francisco who are literally letting sewage flow through the streets. I mean, it's like it, you, every, every week, every month, you hear another story out of San Francisco. It's like, how can it get worse? Somehow they always find a way. Like well, that, here's that's the what thing. They here's the thing: is like sewage doesn't have to back up for there to be like poop in your streets in San Francisco. <laughs> like that's right. the thing: is like they should actually be pretty much used to this by now. Oh, you got people think. addicted to heroin who poop on the sidewalks throughout your city. I, I don't know why they're even surprised at this point. Like I've heard from multiple people who who, who live there that like I can't t they can't take the train, uh, especially when they're with their kids because there's needles on the seats. Yeah, there's used needles all over the place. So like, it's it's dangerous to let your kids even walk out. Who knows? Like, jab a needle. That's in, imagine living under such a situation. That's, and and this is the same group. You know, this is the same place that has the ideology that they want to spread to the rest of the country. It's insanity. It's an absolute nightmare. But you know what? I, I this is an old saw. I keep coming back to this. The media is never tough on Democrat. They're never tough on libs. Except I don't know if you guys saw. Karine Jean Pierre. Oh yeah, absolute disaster. She was she was uh, absolutely um, uh, she she was caught off guard, flummoxed. Ed O'Keefe from CBS challenged her. Should we should we listen to the audio? Absolutely. Let's do it. Because on like day two of this administration, when he swore all of you in, the president said, "Quote: I'm going to make mistakes. When I make them, I'll acknowledge them, and I'll tell you." And I'll need your help to help me correct them. So you're the one here yeah, talking to us about this. That's why we're asking. So let's just remember that. And we don't need we don't need to have this. We work very well together. We do. I don't we don't need to have this kind of confrontation. Ask your question, and I will answer well, them the best that the, I can. Part of the reason we're laying that out is because you're laying out your part of the job. We're laying out our part of the job. I know, but I'm just saying that we don't need we to have contention. You don't need to be contentious with me here. The president was asked yesterday, but did not answer this part of the question. Democrats never answer the part of the question they don't want to answer. I gotta say this, you know, typically Ed O'Keefe is pretty much a straight shooter. Like the fact that they're mad she's mad at Ed O'Keefe is like come on, dude. Like mm -hmm. that is wild. This isn't a guy who typically is known for like just giving Dems a hard time. He's not contentious at all. It's wild she erupts like that. Well, I think it just shows you a little bit about what Karine Jean Pierre expects when she stands at the podium she she expects somebody to ask her what's your favorite color and what's your favorite <laughs> flavor of ice cream yeah somebody asks her something a little bit different she's flummoxed and it's i mean especially at a time like this right where uh 
you know, we played at the start of the show, Biden giving weighing in, being like, how can you be so irresponsible with these documents? Right. And then uh, uh, I, I guess yesterday, Corinne Jean-Pierre said that like, oh, you know, it's just like a, a singular event. Just a couple documents were found. And then today more are found. And she's just like not in the mood to deal with Don't it. She, she doesn't know what to say. Just like in San Francisco, a reporter asks, hey, why is there poop in the streets? Yeah. These libs in San Francisco are like, well, you shouldn't be asking that question. Trump, 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 Trump. Bingo. Bingo. <laughs> and that's the thing is like, she, I, I think that's the root of the frustration. And she's like, you're supposed to be on my team. What are you doing? Right. Like, what What's wrong with yeah, you? Yeah, we buddy? have a good relationship. She When she said that, dude, right. I was like, wow. Right. I say things, and then you're supposed to print them. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you get the game, dummy? You're supposed to be at her helping our side. It's outrageous. These guys have a job to do. Right. You know, it's outrageous. Speaking of a job to do, um, a big job, the RNC chair. We've got the current RNC chair, Ronna McDaniel, on for an interview as well. Let's get to it. I want to welcome to the program the esteemed chairwoman of the Republican National Committee, Ronna McDaniel. Welcome. Great to be with you. Great to be back to the program. We wear our ruthless t-shirts in our home quite often. My son is a huge fan. I love that. I love that. Well, this is your this is your second appearance, so you know what's up. Uh, but look, you've got an election on your hands, and it's coming up in short order. And uh, I'm curious just at the top to get your thoughts on that. Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm running for chair again uh, in a really critical time, Josh. I think part of the reason I'm running is continuity in a time when we can take back the Senate, we can win back the White House. I know what the ramp up time is to build a brand new RNC because I've been there before uh, when we had just gotten the White House. And the things that the RNC has done under my tenure, like getting involved in voter reg registration, uh, the election integrity program, the investment in state parties, we just can't take our foot off the gas and be successful in 2024. I'm excited that we just won back the House, but I'm very concerned if we uh, don't keep that infrastructure in place, that we will not take the successes and the wins that are on the table for us in 2024. Yeah, let, let me just focus on 2022 for one second, sure. and then we'll yeah. go forward, because I think forward is much more important. But for 2022, for a lot of us, me included, um, it was a bit of a surprise in that we didn't do better than we thought we would. In your mind, what are sort of the contributing factors there? So I think it's, I, I, I want to look forward, but I do think you have to look back and the RNC is doing an after action report. I think we've got to look at the effect of Dobbs in a state like Michigan, where Prop 3 was a huge factor across the state. Um, we're always happy that Roe's overturned, but we want to make sure we understand what Democrats are doing with it when they're spending $30 million against every candidate on that issue. That's coming back in 2024. So we've got to look at that. Uh, but other things as well. But here's some bright spots from 2022 that I think are overlooked that I think the RNC had a direct effect on. We did have red waves in states like Florida and North Carolina and Iowa. And a big part of that is the fact that for the first time ever, the RNC invested in ongoing voter registration in those states. So in Florida, for the first time in history, Republicans overtook Democrats with more registered Republicans than Democrats. That's huge with Ron DeSantis winning, but also we picked up four house seats in Florida. Mm. Marco Rubio was on the table. States like North Carolina, same thing for Ted Budd, but we also flipped the same state Supreme Court, which is gonna be huge because we're gonna go back to the maps there. Same with Iowa. But I also think 
it's important to recognize that Republicans turned out 3 million more voters than Democrats. And if you looked at this turnout based on the electoral map, we would have won the White House with 297 electoral votes. So just a quick revisit of what the RNC does and what we don't do. We don't pick candidates, the voters do. You know, voters know their state best and that's important for the candidate. We don't do the messaging for the campaigns. Campaigns don't come to me and say, Rana, what should my ad be? They use their campaign team and their pollsters, right? But we do build what I say, we build the road that all the cars drive on. We're doing the voter registration now. We're get, we're training poll watchers and or, or recruiting poll watchers and poll workers now. We, we have these community centers open in Black and Asian and Hispanic communities now. These are things that you have to build long-term investment in to build that road on so the candidates can all drive on it. Not all roads are the same. Not all candidates are the same. Um, but I think the RNC, the infrastructure we built, is, is the reason why 3 million more voters turned out and why in every single battleground state, and I think this is really important to know, a Republican won. Do you know who the top vote getter was in Arizona? The very top vote getter, higher than everybody else. Uh, was it the treasurer? Was yeah. it? Yeah. But it's not like there was drop off. I've heard people say, oh, no, no, there was, there was, um, the Democrats were telling people to fill in the first three parts of the ballot and then they left that part empty. No, that doesn't work because she was the very top vote getter. She got more votes than Mark Kelly, mm. 1,375,000. So it shows you that the RNC worked that the mail program worked, the early vote worked. You're hearing all these criticisms that are just quick sound bites that are not factually based. And I think it's important to understand the reason we lost key races in Arizona was because of Republican on Republican fighting. Oh, yeah. That is the crux of my campaign. We have a party right now, and I am running against somebody right now who is who is running a scorched earth, let's attack Republicans, let's spend all of our time in the circular firing squad. And let's forget who we're against as the Democrats. And what happened in Arizona is Republicans were so upset. They said, not only am I uh, not going to vote for the Republican candidate, I'm just not going to vote mm -hmm. uh, for some of these races and we, for, from candidates who were very vitriolic towards John McCain or others. And you can't just assume that Republicans are going to turn out when you're attacking them all day long. And well, that's the that's the thing, right? I mean, yeah. look, you know this, and and I've been around a long enough long enough to see this, is that you don't win elections by subtraction. Yeah. You know? And and the idea that you spend a general election, even a moment of a general election, attacking people who are predisposed to vote Republican. And are bothered by things like inflation and crime and immigration. Um, seems like it's not a not a winner, right? Yeah, and 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 so when you watch these candidates who are just start looking at Republican leaders and say, are they spending more time attacking another Republican or are they taking on Biden? Mm -hmm. And I'm about bringing people together. I will always be that way. It is a tough time. It's been a you know I've been chair under President Trump. It's not. You know, we always haven't had the most kumbaya party. You know, we've all seen that. But there have been we're challenges. All, <laughs> we're only going to win by addition. And we also need to recognize as independents are looking at us, are they going to say, that's a party I want to be part of? But the answer is yes in a lot of these states. And that's what people should have hope. Arizona, top vote, get a Republican. Nevada, we won three statewide races. And yes, we did do ballot harvesting. Joe Lombardo won. 
um, the governorship there. We we took off a Democrat incumbent. Sununu won in New Hampshire. Ron Johnson won in Wisconsin. Georgia, we won eight out of nine statewide races by huge margins, beating Stacey Abrams for the second time uh, without any runoff. So we had a lot of victories at the statewide level, which shows that there's a road for Republicans to win statewide. And those are the questions we need to be asking as we head into 2024. What was the difference between this Republican that won statewide and this one that didn't? And I would say the road's not the issue if a Republican made it across the finish line. Right. So it, the road that the RNC built was not the reason you know, if, if we had eight out of nine win in Georgia, you can't say, oh, we didn't get early voting done and the mechanics weren't there because we won eight out of nine races. So I'm going to challenge the narrative that's being put forward right now. There's always room to improve mechanics, but we do invest in ballot harvesting. We understand the importance of mail-in voting. We understand the importance of absentee voting and we invested in it. And we won statewide in every battleground state that the RNC invested in, except for Pennsylvania. And we can go into that. There's a whole bunch of things that happened in that state. And I think we all have post-traumatic stress disorder from, from Pennsylvania 2022. It wasn't for a lack of effort, I can tell you that much. But but I will say, you've addressed sort of the chief critique by Harmeet Dillon uh, that she has leveled both on this program and uh, in recent days that the ground game basically hasn't innovated towards rules and laws that have been in place in certain states since COVID. And yeah. what you're saying is we have the difference in our, our how candidates performed is based on the candidate and the campaign. Correct. And I do think this, and this is part of the reason why I've created this future of the party advisory committee with some candidates that won, that lost, I do think we've got to create some tools to help our candidates go, you know, know what should I be paying for SMS texting? What are good governance practices that I should be asking consultants? Is my consultant directing me to put more money on TV because they get a back end deal on TV and foregoing a ground game or digital or other things? And I do think we have to help some of these candidates because the one thing I would say about this cycle on the Senate side which I always said the Senate was going to be tough this cycle. I think another problem is we had a lot of people over-promising so that people felt let down. But I think after January 6, 2021, we would have all been ecstatic to say we were winning back the House and taking back the gavel from Nancy Pelosi. So the expectation game was set a little high. I never used the phrase red wave. I banned it at the RNC. Um, but one thing I think you would agree with, Josh, is at the statewide level on the Senate candidates, none of them had run for office ever. Many right. of them had never run for office. Not, ju not just like had they run for state Senate or other things. They've never run for office ever. Not even dog catcher. Dr. Oz, Herschel Walker, J.D. Vance, Blake Masters, Tiffany Smiley, Joe O'Day. None of them had ever run for office. So what happens? It's like sending somebody to war who'd never gone to boot camp. They don't have a fundraising infrastructure They've never had to build that gut of, is my consultant right or wrong? They've not done grassroots. They've not had to train volunteers. And one of the things I learned talking to some of these candidates is they really didn't know what to say to their consultants. Like, mm -hmm. should I be paying 15% on the back end of my TV buy? Should I be paying 17 cents per SMS text? And I think we need to protect our candidates and go forward and help them with just a kind of a good governance package. Well, I think that's really well said. I mean, th historically speaking, 
party committees, not the RNC, but the NRCC and the NRSC have played a large role in that. And that that obviously did not happen in 2022. So I, I guess what I'm hearing you say is from the RNC perspective, particularly as we get into the presidential election, more emphasis needs to be put on coordinating with those committees to ensure the people who are running for office, particularly for the first time, are understanding what they're getting themselves into from a consultant standpoint and from you know basically a, a, an infrastructure standpoint. Yeah, I mean, because you know, Josh, people don't know this, but I came from working on my mom's campaign for Senate. You know, she had just divorced my dad, Scott Romney. My grandfather, George Romney, endorsed against my mom. So we were the underdog. That's a tough deal, by the way. You know, I was a young girl, you know, driving my mom around. Everybody's angry with her for using the Romney name. And she was against everything. But I remember her setting aside a certain amount of money and telling her campaign treasurer, do not let my consultants spend this money because I don't want to be in debt after this Mm -hmm. campaign. Because she was a single mom of five kids. I sat with her. She had to cut up credit cards as a young girl. And it was scary to divorce a Romney in the state of Michigan, you know, that, and I'm, you know, that was my baptism into politics. And I've always thought about the candidate and what I've learned with the consultant class, and there's so many great ones, but there's also ones who don't do well for their candidate. And then they go, well, it's the RNC's fault, or it's the candidate's fault. And we're not holding people accountable who are giving bad, um, guys to some of these candidates. And I think for me, that really came on display this cycle with all these new candidates who came in who'd never run for office and, and people are seeing dollar signs. And then at the end, these consultants, some of them are like, oh, the RNC didn't do this and do this. I'm like, yes, we did. We mm-hmm. turned out votes, 3 million more votes this this cycle. We won statewide in that state you're complaining about. So what was the advice that this one gave that this one didn't? And we need to do that. So I've talked to you know, Monica De La Cruz is on this, Jason Mieras, I was with Myra Flores the other day. I'm really calling candidates and saying, how can we help you better? Because it's not just enough to build the road. We're a team. And this is a team sport. And we all want to win because we care about our country. And so I'm sick of the scapegoating and the this person didn't do enough and I'm going to attack them. And I'm hearing that come towards me. And I think it's really unfounded and unfair, especially from somebody who's been on the committee in a leadership role who is now throwing darts when she could have asked really productive questions throughout and didn't. And I'm like, you know, there was a better way to have this conversation instead of always putting out there the worst connotation uh, uh, without getting the facts. Because so, I think when I have the conversations like you and I are having, most people don't know that we would have won the presidency based on the turnout this cycle. Most people don't know that we won statewide in every battleground state. Most people don't know that we won eight out of nine races in Georgia and that we took over voter rights in Florida. And that's what the RNC does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, look, I think all of those are very salient points. I mean, as you're well aware, and I think you've touched on a lot of this, what beyond ground game, one of the principal critiques that your opponent makes about you is consultants. And yeah. what she says are sort of perennial consultants that are always around the RNC. I mean, what's your response to that? Well, we have a vigorous RFP process, um, request for proposal for everybody. We have a vendor day. We tell our state parties, bring in vendors that you want us to use. She's been a vendor. She made $1.3 from the RNC in the past two years, okay? So um, 
I, you know, I would love to hear what she had these, if she had these concerns before the election rather than after. I think these, this Monday, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking is kind of convenient when I've never had an email or concern when she was making that type of money. But here's what I would say is there are some barriers for small vendors at the RNC. There's no question. We have major cyber security concerns. We are always being um, attacked by bots. I meet with DHS and um, the CIA or the FBI and others because we are a major massive target for outside governments and others. So yes, I'm not going to let a vendor access our network and our data without property secure, proper security protocols or insurance. Um, those are things that are barriers for smaller vendors, but I want to help them grow. We want to get them there. Um, but we have a huge, vast amount of vendors. What um, I hope people understand is since I've been chair, I've raised 1.5 billion, more than any other chair in the RNC's history. Uh, that doesn't just happen, but it also means um, as we bring people in, there's a mass, a lot of contracts, but I'm always open to looking to how can we do better? And we need to look at our vendors and their performance after the fact. Did they get mail there on time? How was the texting working? What was the connect rate? Those are all things that are always valid. And we look at after every cycle. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. Um, one thing that is eye popping to a lot of us that you're well aware of is the huge disparity that we're now seeing on the small dollar front, particularly at the campaign level. Correct. And this is, we had, look, we had, we had great reason for hope a couple of years ago that sort of leveled off. Clearly, we're going to have a tough time competing in purple states when our candidates are being outspent three or four to one on hard dollars, campaign dollars. What do we do to fix that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And that's what I mentioned earlier with these new candidates that didn't have a fundraising infrastructure, right? And they're running statewide against a Mark Kelly or a Warnock who had these machines pre-built. It's hard to go up against an incumbent in that situation. As you and I both know, Josh, um, Act Blue has been the juggernaut fundraising, small dollar fundraising machine for the Democrats. They've had it for over 15 years. When Red started in 2018, um, it took all of us coming together to get a small dollar fundraising platform. It needs to be innovating and looking at ways to help the candidates. What I would say is it's twofold. Candidates need to invest in building their email lists. You know, if you're only sending emails to 10 people, you're only going to get a certain return rate, right? So it's important that candidates understand conduiting uh, with each other, finding ways to be creative. Um, but I think more than anything, what the Democrats do well is they run on issues and they run Act Blue based on issues like we saw it with Black Lives Matter. We see it with post Dobbs world. And it's not even about the candidate that drives it as much as the issues. And we've got to find a way to help win red and and others ride the issues. CRT, mm -hmm. um, parents being put out of their kids' classroom, um, what's being taught to our kids in schools. These are things that are, people are deeply passionate about. And I think that'll be a bigger driver. But people need to remember, these this platform's new, and it only started since I've been chair with a lot of people coming together, it was probably one of the hardest things to do to get this contract done. And it's not perfect. And I don't have a stake in WinRed. I'm not on the board of WinRed, but I certainly helped get a small dollar platform off the ground. And we didn't have this before. And our candidates need this, but candidates who aren't investing in your email list and growing that, 
you're, you're not going to have a huge fundraising platform. So you, and you should do it in an off year, right? Don't do it when it costs more. This is the year to be building those lists. This is, it's cheaper right now. This is the most effective time to be growing your, your donor file. Is that something you would consider injecting into like debate qualifications, for example, because we saw Democrats really have a huge hockey stick in their amount of small dollar donors when they created a criteria to qualify for debates based on how many donors they get into a small dollar platform. Is that something that's discussed at the RNC at all? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a debate committee. Dave Bossie is the head of the debate committee, and we've been meeting for over a year. I'm sure many of your listeners are aware that we pulled out of the Commission on Presidential Debates uh, for the first time ever. And why? We asked them for really three simple criteria. Have debates start before voting starts? Simple, right? We want people to be able to see the presidential candidates before voting. Um, make sure any moderators disqualified who worked for a, a candidate, like um, they had one who had worked for Joe Biden and also a code of ethics for members of the Commission on Presidential Debates to not um, disparage any nominee from either party. They said, no, we're not going to do any of those three things. We, we're not going to. So we had to pull out. We have to protect our candidates. So it's the first time we've done that. But going forward, we have the primary debates right around the corner. The presidential race has already started. I think people don't understand the RNC is already on the ground. We're do we have to do voter reg and election integrity, but we have a primary debate probably in July or August of this year. And I do think the fundraising criteria has to be part of the debate uh, qualification for any candidate to get on that stage. The well, Democrats I, put that I applaud in, that. And we've I, been looking at that. We look at what's an accurate metric. It's a, the Democrats had about 65,000 small dollar donors, unique donors. That was their criteria for the first debate stage. Um, I don't know if we're going to be that high, but we are looking at that on top of a polling criteria. Wow, that's smart. I think that's really smart. And perhaps we can involve some new voices like, I don't know, the Ruthless Variety program. I, I think, I, listen, we want to open it up to everybody. And I think our, our there's new mediums, right? People right. are doing listening to podcasts. There's new voices. And we have to be nimble and adept um, and mix it up. And uh, I think... We're going to, the presidential race has already started. And this is why midterm, and you know, I get a lot of, oh, well, you're, you're running. My first four years as chair, the RNC is an extension of the White House, right? Um, I've heard a lot of criticism about expenses and things like that. Most of those expenses done by the RNC were done at the direction of the White House. We pay for the Christmas parties. We pay for the Hanukkah parties because President Trump and the first lady did not want the taxpayers to pay for it. So the RNC does. But I've really had my first two years with as chair these past two and that's when we did things like have a hundred percent poll watching coverage elect get poll wa um, workers recruited in states like wisconsin invest in state parties and the voter registration things that have been new and innovative for the rnc um, and we we can't mid-cycle i think start and then think we're going to build it up and have that infrastructure in place when we have a really good senate map right ohio uh, west virginia montana arizona they have 21 seats up, the inverse of this year. We didn't have the best Senate map this year, and then the presidential, and then we've got to retain the House. So this is going to be a critical year on top of three races right now in 2023 where we can win key governorships in Kentucky and Louisiana. No question about it. So so let me ask you, for those who, and you just mentioned, your, your first years you spent as RNC chair under the Trump administration 
funding a lot of their priorities. Obviously, you know, the RNC at that point is the political arm. Yeah, when the chief of staff of the White House calls and says, this is what you're doing. That's what you do. You're hiring. That's what you do, right? Because your biggest fundraiser is the president. And that's the right thing. But I come from being a state party chair. I've worked on campaigns my whole life. I remember I'm the one who turned Michigan around and got President Trump uh, and with him, a, a candidate and him, building an infrastructure that turned Michigan around for the first time in 30 years. My opponent has never run a state party. She has never run a campaign. I think... You know, it's it, it's easy to say, oh, all these things from the outside. But when you've never done that, it's really hard to run a national party in a year like this. This is not at the time to be changing and putting it in the hands of somebody who's never done those things ever before. How do you answer critics who are concerned about, you know, the, just the fact that, I mean, look, you became party chair because of the recommendation of President Trump. And there is a closeness there. There's a good working relationship over many years. You've re- remained close with the former president. Now we enter, you know, what's going to be an open primary. How do you address any concerns that somebody might have about thumbs on the scale or anything else? Yeah, I, I think that's a fair question. You know, the RNC has to stay neutral. I ple- I pledged neutrality when I ran in 2020 um, to to re up as chair. It's it's part of the the importance of the RNC, that we can't put our thumb on the scale because I'm so committed that the voters decide who the nominee is. That's why we don't get involved in primaries at the Senate or the House level. My opponent has recommended getting involved in primaries. I actually think that's a bad idea. Um, It's against our bylaws, number one, but number two, voters don't like Washington coming in and saying this is going to be the nominee. If that had happened with the RNC in 2016, they would have said Donald Trump won't be the nominee. So The voters are the best. I trust the voters. I have a lot of faith in them to know who's best to represent them. So, um, but I do think having a good relationship with President Trump and with all the potential candidates and knowing them and having a longstanding history with so many of them will help during this election cycle because we're going to need all of them to come together at the end and say what we believe, despite our differences and what brings us together, is so much greater. Uh, than than anything that we have have uh, uh, that sets us apart, and we have to defeat Joe Biden because no at the question. end of the day, when you go to the border, when you see the fentanyl crisis, when you see our kids having long lasting deficits from the shutdowns, when you see what's happening across this country with out of control spending, with things like student loan forgiveness on the back of hardworking families and taxpayers. When you see what's happening on top of the potential of stacking the Supreme Court and getting rid of the filibuster, I gotta say this, Republicans, if we do not come together, if we are so angry with each other that we lose sight of what we are trying to protect and the country we love and the party that we know has the best solutions and best ideas, we are handing it to the Democrats again. And so I would ask, yes, we can change mechanics and do mail better and ballot harvesting, all those things. But when you watch the people on TV and you see people with a divisive campaign against other Republicans, you need to repudiate that. We need to push back on that, say enough is enough. Let's remember what we're up against because we lost key races this cycle. And Arizona is the best example because Republicans were so mad at each other, they refused to vote for other Republicans. And that is a losing recipe. And let me just tell you, if Republicans aren't voting for other Republicans, I guarantee you independents are. (laughs) Nobody else will. Nobody else is either. If we're fighting each other so much, nobody's like, hey, I want to be part of that party. No, 
no young kid is saying that. Nobody's saying, oh, this is the great place to be when we're vitriolic and scorched earth. And, and I'm watching a woman who I thought was my friend do that to me. And I think, okay, I get it against the Democrats, but not against a, somebody who raised $1.5 billion and has worked the hours I had and was a grassroots, and is a grassroots activist. And, you know, you were willing to take a contract from. That's not okay. And, the, and we need to look at what do we want the leader of our party to say and be? And is it somebody who's bringing people in or pushing people out? And I am in determined to be somebody who is bringing people in. And that is by putting our positive message forward, because I am a Republican, I love our party, but I'm a Republican and I love our party, but I love our country. And I'm worried every day for where Joe Biden and Democrats are taking our country. And the only way we win is by being united and going forward in 2024 with that vision. And I think the presidential candidates, we're going to have to bring them all together. I love that President Trump got on the phone for Kevin McCarthy this week and really helped say we need to get behind a speaker and we need to start leading. And day one, we've already taken back um, money for the 87,000 IRS agents. We're holding Biden accountable. And everybody, remember, we just won back the House. And this is a great day for our party. Ronna McDaniel, that's your campaign pitch. I really appreciate your time. Let's stay in touch. I Thanks, know we've got a lot to talk about in the upcoming <laughs> months. Thank you so much. Have a good one. You too. Well, it's a big job. It's a big job that Ron is trying to do, that Harmeet is also running for. Obviously, very important for the future of the party and the future of the next election. 2024 is going to be a huge, huge deal. And so, obviously, all eyes are on this race. And, I, and like you said, it's a huge job. We got to make sure that we got a good, you know, field general because 2024 is going to be big, especially when you're hearing this news about how corrupt and out of control this administration is. We got to make sure we got like a, a battle tested machine ready to defeat Joe Biden, because I think that's that's like the number one priority we got going on. So that's why this is so key. So important. I'm so proud we could get both of them on the same show. I mean, that's amazing. Outstanding work. Uh, so absolute banger of an episode gentlemen if i may say so myself thank you so much to harmony dylan thank you so much to uh ronna mcdaniel and thank you so much to our listeners so until next time minions keep the faith hold the line and own the libs we'll see you on tuesday stay ruthless